I know we have some people kind of just joining us for the first time. And uh, we are in uh, the ninth chapter of Hebrews, looking at verses 23 through 28 today. And as we go into that, I want to give a quick reminder of where we come from, kind of the way we've been going through this. And uh, uh, we've looked at uh, the intro to Hebrews that really laid out that this whole letter is written to a group of people. You know, sometimes people don't understand that in the Bible, when you read these things like in the New Testament, a lot of these books are letters that were written to people. And this was a letter written to a group of a faith community in and around Rome. Christians and people in the faith community who weren't believers or followers of Christ, but they had left and they were kind of tagging along because they were either curious, uh, they thought just by being associated with them, it would be a good thing. Uh, and, and they were having problems because some of them were trying to lead people away from Christ to go back to temple worship, to go back to sacrifices and and so this writer is writing this letter to address all this and kind of convince people to be all in with Jesus, to be all in and all in in the sense of not their works, but all in in the sense of belief, all in in the sense of their trusting in Christ and Christ alone and nothing else. And so uh, the whole theme is Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. He's superior to angels. He said in chapter uh, uh, two, he's superior to Moses in chapter three. He's superior to Joshua in chapter four. He's superior to the high priest in the whole sacrificial system. And he starts that at the end of chapter four. And basically what he's been doing is explaining how Jesus is the greatest high priest. Because the most important function in the Jewish sacrificial system was the high priest. And so in chapter seven, he, he kind of lays out this priest called Melchizedek, which most people don't know. They just know it's mentioned back in Genesis. But Melchizedek was very important in the messianic prophecies of the high priest. And in Psalm 110, it lays out this prophecy that says Messiah is going to be in the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus fulfilled these prophecies because Jesus and Melchizedek were both priest and king. They were both divinely appointed. They were uh, both greater than Abraham. They were both kings of righteousness and kings of peace. And they, they both were a picture of God. The other priests uh, were only dealing with the sacrifices and the kings dealt with leadership. And what God says in Melchizedek and in Jesus is you have a sacrifice, you have a connector to God, and you have the authority of God and the authority of leadership. Because most of the priests did not exercise leadership in the area of other parts of the government or other parts of life, only the spiritual and so Melchizedek and Jesus brings these two together. And I think it's important for us because we segregate our spiritual and our other activities a lot. I think if you, if you really step back and look, one of the biggest problems we have in our country is 
we have a lot of people that know about Jesus in their head and they, they might even live that way on Sunday or when they're around Christian people. But when they get out in the rest of the world, they live under different guidelines. They live under different standards. They live with different values. And that's part of the problem. We don't just have a Christian belief. We're believers. We're called. What are you called to? Uh, so often we don't live with a calling. We live with a belief system that we just tuck off into a compartment of our life. But we are called as his people to put him on display in the world where we walk every day, every day, not just Sunday, not just the day we go to worship. Every day we are called to put him on display. And that's what he's trying to get across to these people saying, don't go back to this system of just doing this and then, okay, your sins are forgiven now for, or covered. They're not really forgiven, but they were covered for the year and go back to your, your world, your work or whatever you're doing. He's saying, we have a new covenant where the law is written on our heart. And because it's written on our heart, we walk around every day as new people who are forgiven and have hope to tell the rest of the world. And last week, we saw this question answered of why did Messiah have to die? Why did he have to die? Because justice had to have payment. And yet God loves us so much, he brought mercy and justice together. And he revealed that by merging these two things, uh, that now we can go spread hope to everybody. Not, In other words, the old covenant was, if you do this, then I will do this. But the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 says, because I do this, now you go do this. And, and it's a different motivation. And so we saw last week God giving us this invitation to be a called one. You know, remember I said Christians were only referred to as Christians three times in the New Testament. And so uh, we referred to as called and believers more than anything else. And then we also saw that he gave us this legal illustration of a will. And he talked about you can't have an inheritance until somebody dies under a will. And we, we, we talked about that last week. And, and we talked about the two Greek words, diatheka and suntheka. Diatheka means an agreement between a greater party and a lesser party kind of a will or covenant. And soon theka is equal. And that word diatheka is used. This is not a negotiation. You know, you don't get to negotiate a will. You know, Don, your mother passed away and I know they're doing the estate and they're doing everything. But as much as some kids may want to try to negotiate a will with their parent, you don't get to do that or an uncle or whoever leaves you in the uncle or the parent decides what they're going to do. It's not a negotiated thing. And our deal isn't negotiated with God either. It's not an agreement. He chose to do this and he gives us this incredible inheritance of eternal life. And that eternal life should spur us on. And here's the third thing we looked at last week was he not only gave us an invitation and an explanation, but he basically gave us a valuation. What we have is costly, and he brought that out very clearly last week because sin always demands blood. 
it always demands blood. And it's not just the blood, it's the death. When when people would walk the blood path back like in Genesis 15, it meant that if the covenant was violated, a death was required. And so from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we saw in Genesis 3, what did God have to do to cover sin? There had to be a death. He had to kill an animal to put skins on Adam and Eve. And then Exodus, what did God do to protect his people? They had to kill a lamb and put blood over the doorpost. The day of atonement, an animal had to die. Even in Revelation 5, it says, by your blood, you are ransomed. Covenants are secured with blood. They always have been, and and they still are. And this covenant that we have, this new covenant, had to be secured with blood. And it's not just the blood, it's the death of Jesus. And so that's kind of what has brought us up to this point today where we're going to read in Matthew 9, I'm sorry, Hebrews 9, 23. And I want you to look at these three things today in this text. It's only five, six verses. What he's trying to get across today is that Jesus gave a better sacrifice than these old sacrifices because the first thing it did was it changed our relationship to the Father. His sacrifice, the old sacrifices did not eternally change our relationship to the Father, but his sacrifice did. The old sacrifices simply covered sin And it allowed the father to go in and the father communed with the high priest. And the priest took that as a sign that God was okay with the people of Israel and they were able to go on to the next year. But it did not forgive people forever. There was no eternal security in that. So Jesus' sacrifice is better because it eternally changed our relationship to the father. Second, it completed the requirement of the new covenant. Remember, It was a one-way covenant, but if it was violated, there had to be death. And so it completed that. It was one death, not a death every year. Think of all the animals, millions, guys, of sheep and goats and bulls have been killed over the years because of the sins of people. They said during one Passover, during one Passover about the time of Jesus, 300,000 lambs would have been slain. I want you to think about all that blood that flowed down through the Kidron Valley. But with Jesus, he's a better sacrifice, and his one death completed completed the requirements of the new covenant. The third thing that his death, his better sacrifice did, was it confirmed those who would be saved. It confirmed those who would be saved, and we're going to see that in the text. Okay, so if you have a Bible, join me in reading what he says. Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. I just want you to stop and think about that for a second, Dave, David Gray. That Jesus is in heaven right now 
in the presence of the Father on your behalf. I mean, I, that's, that's an amazing thought to me that, that he would be in God's presence intervening for me. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. May God bless his word. Hey guys, in verse 23, there's a word there. He says, it was necessary, necessary. I want you to think about that for a second. Our adoption was costly. Paul refers to it as adoption in Ephesians 1. It was costly. There was a great adoption cost for you and me to be in God's family. And it forever changed our relationship. Do you know that in the Old Testament, before Jesus, nobody would have ever referred to God as father, ever. It just didn't happen. It was a different relationship. And, and so now when you, when you refer to God, we have the privilege to refer to him as father. You know why? Because in the gospel of John in verse, or chapter one, verses 12 through 13, it says to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You didn't go to God. You didn't just decide on your own to go to him. God drew you as his child to say, you're mine. I want you to respond to my son, Jesus. And our response to him gives us this access to be his child and to call him father, to call him dad. Now, I want you to think for a second about our earthly relationships with our kids and how good it feels when they call you dad. I want you to think about that for a second. I mean, there, there's a great joy when your child says, hey, dad, I love you. Hey, dad, I need your help. Hey, dad, just hearing the words, hey, dad, and so often early in my life, guys, I'm just telling you, I did not view God as a father. Instead, I viewed him as just this cosmic being far away that if I didn't do right, I was going to get slammed. I didn't view him as a dad who go, you know, like this morning when I was praying, I'm just like, man, dad, I, I just need help. You know what? I'm struggling. I just need you. I just, I'm so sorry that I'm blowing it. And I just, I just, I just, I know you love me and thank you for your son. Thank you for what you did. But I talked to him in a very intimate way, not in some distant way. I mean, listen, what this guy's saying in this text in, in verse 23 is God ordained 
our forgiveness and our adoption into his family by the shedding of blood and the purification of this covenant by the sprinkling of blood. In other words, the patterns of the old covenant tabernacle were purified by the sprinkling of blood. When the priest would go in, remember what he did? He would take the blood and throw it over the ark and it was purified. And the blood of Jesus not only purifies our conscience, but it says in this verse, it purifies heavenly things. You see, Jesus had to die to purify the things in heaven and ratify the new covenant. If the whole earthly system had to be purified with a sacrifice, then the heavenly one has to be purified purified with a better sacrifice. Think about that. Jesus is better than any bull, goat, or calf. I mean, and what he's trying to say is that if the copy had to have a sacrifice, then how much more so the reality had to have a sacrifice. And not just an earthly sacrifice, but a divine better one. All the blood of the old covenant was nothing but a picture to us of the shed blood of Jesus, his death. His death is the only thing that satisfies God. And it not only satisfies God, it glorifies him because what it did is it merged justice with mercy. And because of that, Paul says he gave Jesus the name that's above every name. In Philippians 2, it says, at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow, things on earth and under the earth. God exalted him. He lifted him up to the highest place he could lift him right there at his own right hand because of what he had done. That meant he was satisfied with Jesus, even though he's not satisfied with us. No matter what we do, no matter how good we are, John Perry, he's never satisfied with us. You can be the best person. You can be Billy Graham. You can preach to thousands of people. He's never satisfied with us. And that's why we come to God in the name of Jesus and we link ourselves to him. Like that cross link I gave uh, some of you guys, we link ourselves to him because God's satisfied with us through Jesus. And when we enter into his presence, we never come by anything we do We only enter by his death and sprinkled blood. Because of Jesus, no matter how bad we are, he's satisfied with us. That should make us want to jump up and down and go, holy cow, thank you, God. Thank you for what you've done. And Jim, thank you for sending that to me this morning because what John Stott said is right. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and he puts himself where only God deserves to be, while God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, while God accepts penalties which belongs to man alone. I think that's incredible, and it's a reminder, guys, to me that I'm a nobody. You see, in our world, when we come to Christ and we start feeling like we're contributing, you can start to feel like you're a somebody, and your opinion counts. I have no authority. When I share the word, and I know I share with passion, 
but I have no authority to tell you you're a sinner. The only authority comes from his word. So what I say about it, if it's not in line with what his word says, means nothing. No pastor, no Christian leader has any authority over you unless it's from the word of God. That is it. For us communicating God's truth, that's where authority comes from. We, we just, we merely explain it. And if we're right in what we're saying and we're doing what God says in his word, then that word carries authority with it. You know, our, one of our core values at SWAT is that God's word is our authority and starting point. And a lot of times I think we, we think that pastors or Christian leaders or even government leaders have authority. Do you know who our king is? Our king is Jesus. Our king is Jesus. He has absolute authority over us. And because he was worthy, he died on the cross, then he pres- he has that authority. We don't always give him that authority, but he has it. Now, some of you may be asking because it says in the verse in Hebrews 9 about he had to die. He had to have a better sacrifice for the heavenly. He had to purify heaven. Why would he have to purify heaven? I thought heaven was perfect. Well, I mean, it's easy for you and me to see that the earthly sanctuary would would be defiled because why? It has humans in it and we're defiled. But nothing in heaven is defiled. And in a literal sense, even the earthly tabernacle was not defiled. What he's talking about there is people's relationship to God. You see, the blood sprinkled on the ark did not change the nature of the tabernacle but it did change the relationship that God had so that God could come there by that blood being there. God would come there and meet with a high priest. Then the high priest would walk out alive and the people would go, okay, God is satisfied. And, and so through Jesus, even though we're sinners, we get to go into the Holy of Holies and call God our father because of Jesus, because his sacrifice was better. Even though we're physically on earth, that's what I was talking about earlier when I talked about it to David, that Jesus went in, and when he went in, he's there interceding for me and you so that we can go in, Dave Wilbert. He's sitting there talking to God, saying, you know, Dave Wilbert, God, he blew it really bad with Marsha yesterday, but he's he can go in and come talk to you, Father, because of the blood, right? And God goes, yeah, that's right. That's right. And David has access to the Father because of Jesus. And you and I have that. So in order for God to receive us, the blood of Jesus had to be applied. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't go back to the old system because that old system was limited. And, and, and we enter into God's presence by Jesus' blood. It says that next chapter, chapter 10, a far more costly sacrifice than a bull or a goat. And that's what he's saying in verse 23. Verse 24, he gets into the completion of the requirements of the new covenant. He says, notice, he says repeatedly in verse 24, he says, for Christ has entered not into holy place made with hands, which are copies, but into heaven. In verse 25, it says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. He didn't have to go in there and do it every year. He didn't have to do it all the time. He did it once, it said. And it was 
it completed the requirements of the new covenant. The old covenant ministry, I want to contrast the old covenant and the new covenant for a second. In the old covenant, you had repeated sacrifices. The new covenant, one sacrifice. The old covenant was the blood of others. In the new covenant, it was his own blood. The old covenant, the covering of sin. It just covered it temporarily. The new covenant, it put it away. Do you know, Don, as cranky as you are sometimes, that those cranky sins of selfishness are all covered. Every sin you ever used to do, every sin you commit now, every sin you will commit in the future, it's all put away by that one death on the cross. I mean, that's that's incredible. For me, for me and you, that means nothing else really matters, even though we allow it to come into our life and impact us. Here's another thing. In the Old Covenant, you had to be an Israelite. The Old Covenant, you had to convert to the Jewish faith and be an Israelite. This New Covenant, it's for all sinners. It's for all sinners. The Old Covenant, was it was left there in the Holy of Holies, but in the New Covenant, it says Jesus entered heaven and he remains there sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for me and you. The Old Covenant would just bless people temporarily, but the new covenant, God takes us into the new heaven and earth. Because why? Because what it is, what is heaven? It's not just a place geographically. The kingdom of God is being in the right relationship with God that we can experience here and now. And so the work of Christ is a completed work It's final and eternal. That's what he's saying to these people who are trying to conflate and get people to go back to the old worship system. And it's on the basis of his completed work now. He ministers for me and you every day. You don't need somebody to intercede for you. I mean, it's not that they can't pray for you, but to intercede with God the Father, we have Jesus. He's there. Every sin that you ever commit, or will commit is taken care of by that one sacrifice. And notice that the word appear is used three times in Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. And why? What he's doing is he has appeared to put away sin by dying on the cross in uh, verse 26. He's appearing now in heaven in verse 24 to, to basically intercede for us. And in verse 28, it says he will appear to take us home. These three tenses are all based on what? The one finished work of the cross. It's done. When he said it is finished, it was done, it was complete. And the new covenant says it this way. The new covenant says, I will write my law on their hearts. In other words, he's going to give us this deep love for his word and for him in our hearts based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And because of that, when somebody says, well, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, the demons believe in God. Do you know that? The demons believe, but they don't, the demons don't trust him. They just simply have an intellectual sin about him. This is the problem I have when people say, well, do you know if they were a Christian? Well, you know, they did go to church. So, so. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. 
How many of you guys, just by shaking your head up and down, know people who go to church who aren't Christians? Now, there's lots of people that do that. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian because you go to church. The only way you are a believer or a called one is because you have faith in the name of Jesus Christ and in him as a person. You see, I went to share with a guy this week who is older and he's not doing well health-wise. And I, I took with him a cross and I took a mustard seed. Remember me giving you guys those mustard seeds, how small that is? It's like a fleck of pepper. And I took him that and I said, do you see this? Jesus said, if you have this much faith, which is not a lot, he can save you. You can move a mountain. And by that, he's talking about your salvation. He's saying, what he's saying is that the most important thing is not the amount of faith you have, because I know some of you guys may be struggling sometimes with your faith because you blow it or you're struggling because you struggle to deal with the circumstances you're in right now. But the thing is, it's not the amount of faith you have. It's the object of your faith. And that's why I gave him the cross to show him what Jesus did on that cross forever secured our salvation. And it completed the work of the new covenant. And that takes us into verse 27 and 28, where it says, after we die, the judgment, all men have to die. He said it very clearly in, in verse 28. He said, Christ, having been offered up once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. You see, for those who are in Christ, we don't have to fear God's judgment. When we die, we're going to go, and, and when, when we go before God, when he is a judge then, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to say, hey, he's with me. There is no judgment for him. I mean, it doesn't matter how bad we've been. doesn't matter how bad we've blown it, Gil. Isn't that awesome? That's why when you're dealing with pancreatic cancer, it doesn't matter that you may die because when you stand before God, you get to graduate to your new body. And, and your new body is one that's indestructible. Cancer can't ravage it. Coronavirus can't touch it. It doesn't, it's not limited the way these bodies are limited. And, you know, for me, Christian, I think that's the, that's, that's incredible that God would, would take away everything bad I've ever done. You guys know I've blown it bad in my marriage. I've blown it bad in my family. I've blown it. I, I blow it bad every day. And yet his blood and death on that cross makes it so that when I stand before God, and remember for me, guys, and I've shared this with a lot of you guys, and Mac McGee, I know, is going to go, here he goes again with the bird strike story. But when I was with, uh, in that plane, with God making awful life decisions in my marriage, my greatest concern when that bird hit me was, I'm going to go to hell. I I've blown it so bad. His death on the cross can't pay for what I've done. And what God did was he wrapped his arms around me in the cockpit that day. And he said, no, Doug, that's exactly why he had to go to the cross to pay for that stuff. It required for all mankind, it required a heavy, heavy 
price to be paid so that the divine son of God was the only one that could fulfill it. When he died on the cross, it was over and done with. And your mind, not because of what you do, your mind because of what my son did forever. It pays for everything. And I'm telling you guys, that day was transformational for me, not because I became a Christian that day, but because I understood what he did and how it impacted my daily life. And it changed forever the way I live because he confirmed to me that day I'm his. I don't have to deal with my sin. He's already dealt with it. And maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you struggle because you've blown it and you see the results of blowing it because there's consequences. He didn't say, I'm going to take away the consequences for your sin on earth. What he said is, I'm going to take away the the consequences for your sin eternally. That means that with me, God the Father, I'm satisfied with what Jesus did. Now, our wives, our children, our co-workers, they may not be satisfied because our sin has consequences. And what those things do for you and me is they drive us back to him in gratitude that with the one who matters for eternity, we're saved. With one who matters for eternity, we can go to him and we can talk to him about how we struggle with the consequences we have here on earth for our bad actions. Because our mistakes affect people. And here it is. It's like squeezing toothpaste out of a tube. Once we get it out, we can't go back. It's messy trying to get it back in there. And so that leaves us with a mess on our hands that reminds us that we're human and we need God and we need Jesus. Every time we struggle with our earthly consequences, it should drive us back to the cross in gratitude to thank him. And, and I think what he's trying to say to the people here in Hebrews, the letter, all these people, you know what, after hearing this, these people had to realize there's no middle ground with Jesus. They're either all in or they're not. There was a choice between earthly or heavenly, the temporary or the eternal, the incomplete or the complete, the copy or the reality. In other words, why not return to temple worship and follow Jesus? That's what they were trying to do. And we can have the best of both worlds. No, there's no straddling with Jesus. You're either in his boat and all in or you're not. And that's what this writer was saying. Our sanctuary is in heaven because that's where our father is. Our savior is there interceding for us. Our citizenship is there. You guys, guys, more than Americans... We are called more than Americans. We are believers. That has to be the overriding um, reality for you and me, because ultimately what Matthew says is that's where our treasure should be. And whether it's a pandemic, financial ruin, broken relationships, whatever the world brings to you and me, our only hope is in Jesus. And, And we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. No matter what happens, we can be confident because everything's settled in heaven. So I want to kind of close with this thought. You celebrated Easter a week ago. And, you know, there were three crosses on that hill. The Romans got three crosses. There was a thief on the right. 
and a thief on the left. And one of my good friends did a message a while back and, and it really, he, he made the point, which side of the cross are you on? The right or the left? Because there were two thieves. One responded to Jesus, one didn't. The one thief said yes, the other said no. One thief recognized him, one thief ridiculed him. One thief said, prove yourself. The other said, yourself you've proved. One thief said, take me with you. The other said, I don't need you. So which side of the cross are you going to be on? There's no middle ground. The new covenant brought forgiveness and his law should be written on our hearts. Like Paul says, because of that, we should rejoice always. So as we finish our time today, which side of the cross are you on? Are you living in the reality that he's your father, that he paid the price and nothing you have done will ever disqualify that sacrifice from covering you? That should make us all want to praise him and live for him no matter what he does. So whether it's a pandemic, whether it's anything else, we are his. He calls us to be disciples, guys. And that's what we're about, discipleship. You know, we are to be people that have a passion to be like him. And what did Jesus do? Listen to what it said about early Christians as we close out our time. Back in about 250 AD, there was this terrible pandemic. It was killing 5,000 people a day in Rome. And at the first onset of the disease, people pushed the sufferers away. They fled from those closest to them, throwing them into the roads before they were dead. They treated the unburied corpses as dirt, hoping to avert the spread and contagiousness of the disease. But even doing that, they found it difficult to escape. That's what was going on in their world. But listen to what, it, what, it, what one guy said about Christians. Most of our brother Christians showed an unbounded love and loyalty, never thinking of themselves, only of one another. They didn't heed the danger. They took care of the sick. They attended to every need. They ministered to them in Christ. With them depart and with them, they joined them in departing this life serenely happy for they got infected by others with the disease. They took the disease on themselves as they ministered to neighbors and cheerfully accepted their pain. This had an unbelievable impact on the growth of Christianity back in 250 AD. So much so that the, the leaders in Rome tried to emulate the Christians and they created charities, but there was a problem. The charities they created couldn't do what the Christians did because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Their belief was in a vain pagan God. We believe in a real God. He's real, he's alive. And because of that, we can have hope. We can minister to widows. We can minister to the people in India. We can minister all over the world. We can give even though we we're going through tough times ourselves. We have to be the light to the world. And so, Father, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for each man here. Thank you for the reminder of what your son did and it being final for us. And as we close out this time and we go with our business and do what we do, 
May we never forget that we have the hope of Jesus. We have the light of the world, that we are essential to those around us. We are essential in the sense that, Lord, we are spiritual doctors, EMTs, if you will, whatever. We are the go-between between those who do not know you and those who can have access to you. Use us. Let us be a light, whether we use social media, whether we go out and serve in the, the community, homeless people, whether we uh, serve widows. Use us as your children and let us, Lord, be a living witness of our great hope and our great King. We love you and we thank you. Amen.